This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 420, Interview with James B. Conroy about his latest book, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Mr. Conroy, author of such books as Jefferson's White House and Lincoln's White House, now turns his considerable talents to World War II. Pearl Harbor has brought the U.S. into the war, but Washington and London are far apart on how to fight and win this war. They are a common people with a common goal, separated by differing worldviews and a common language. The British have the experience, the Americans the industrial might, but unless they're on the same page, victory is far from certain. Mr. Conroy, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm so excited you're here. I loved your book and all the details and all the nuances. We're going to go into that. But let me start with the first question. So it's January 1941, and clearly the U.S. is going to be drawn into this war eventually, either by the actions of the Japanese or maybe a German U-boat sinking an American vessel. But it seems likely that the Americans are going to get involved as much as the as at least 50 percent of the American pop, um, public doesn't want to. So that means that the Americans are going to be allies with the British. But as I, as we know and as I discovered further in your book, the U.S. and the Brits are very different people. They're very different countries, very different leaders. Can you give us a, a snapshot of the moment that Harry Hopkins is sent to check out Churchill, if I can use that term, by FDR going, hey, you know, size this guy up for me. What, what's going on in the countries at the time? Sure. Well, to start with, Harry Hopkins was FDR's alter ego at the time. Uh, <laughs> right. He didn't really hold a formal position, but he was FDR's closest aide and advisor. And um, uh, Roosevelt was wary of Churchill and vice versa. 
Mm. Uh, you know, FDR is the classic liberal anti-colonial <laughs> and right. uh, Churchill is the classic conservative imperialist. So they really couldn't be much further apart on the spectrum. Right. And, uh, you know, word had come back to FDR that Churchill wasn't keen on him, certainly not his New Deal. And, mm. um, you know, Roosevelt had thin resources. This is uh, still post-depression era and um, strong political opposition to any involvement in foreign wars. So and also, you know, many advisors were telling him, knowledgeable people, uh, that the Brits just could not win this war. They were going to lose. Right. Right. So the idea is, am I going to pour resources into this losing venture or do they have a chance to win and are they determined to win? Mm. So he sent Hopkins over, as he put it, to talk to Churchill like an Iowa farmer and find <laughs> out what was going on over there. <laughs> I love that. So basically what I got out of that is, um, look, everybody's been losing to Nazi Germany so far. Why should the British be any different? It doesn't look good for them. And we, like you said, the Americans are still gearing up. They're still playing catch up for decades of not producing a lot of weapons. And uh, so, yeah, I guess FDR needs to know, am I wasting my time with Correct. this guy? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Harry Hopkins was great. I absolutely loved him. This man, he, he didn't pull punches. And like you said, because he had the backing of, of the president, he was able to be bold. And he was bold and he was daring, despite his physical uh, ailments, if you will. But so, so Harry, Hopkins, Harry Hopkins goes over. He sees that Churchill is the real deal. He reports that to FDR. So at least the president knows he has someone who's a fighter, someone who's going to go as far as he possibly can. And that's exactly what FDR needs, because as you just said, America is not yet in the war. They need someone to stand up to the Nazis. Correct. Uh, and the Brits knew very well that they couldn't do it long term without right. American help. Yeah, we're going to get to that. The, the, and and this, this is one of the things that I loved about your book. The Americans have got all these resources. The British have all this experience and they've got to work something out. And like you stress in your book, you know, there's different points of view. There's different mentalities, but we'll get to that. But this is not as easy as some would believe that they're simply going to come together. They're going to agree to fight, how to fight. I mean, this this gets dragged out, and that's what I loved about your book so much. So my next question is, <clears throat> you mentioned the ABC, the American-British Conversations, and they were kept quiet because the Lend-Lease Bill is going through, which is a very big deal. But the point is the Americans and the Brits are talking. Can you give us an idea of how the British wanted to fight this war versus the American way once you know Pearl Harbor happens and the Americans are officially in the war. Sure. Well, first of all, the uh, these talks that were taking place in Washington were very mm. secret. Uh, mm. And the Brits even came in civilian clothes so as not to draw attention to it. Because wow. if, if, if it were learned that there was serious talk about, you know, going to fight a British war in Europe again, mm. you know, 20 years uh, on from the last one, oh, yeah. um, that would have been a political disaster. So it was all under the table. But um, basically, they agreed on one principle, mm -hmm. uh, they they both knew it was likely that Japan would be at war with them soon as well, uh, but that Germany had to be beaten first, that Germany right. would be the priority, because Japan could damage our interests and tie up the Pacific, which was bad, but the Germans could literally conquer the world, <laughs> so, yes. uh, you know, starting with England. So uh, they agreed on that. 
What they disagreed on was the overall approach to beating Germany. Uh, um, in a nutshell, and it's complicated as the book explains <laughs> you know, fully, but right. in, in a nutshell, the Americans were in favor of getting to the heart of the German army as quickly as they could, engaging them head on and just pummeling them until they stopped struggling. And that right. was sort of the American military approach uh, for, for decades or a century or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the British, on the other hand, um, were, uh, you know, very conscious of having suffered horrendous casualties in World War One, right. and also being driven from France in 1940 with their tails between their legs at Dunkirk, mm-hmm. and uh, were not at all eager to go back uh, until the Germans had been weakened and uh, the Allies had built their strength. So their approach was uh, to concentrate on the Mediterranean as the first uh, round of the offensive stage of the war mm-hmm. and, um, drain British uh, rather drain German strength there and uh, disperse it so that the Germans would have to defend everything across the whole southern coast of Europe and not know where they were going to get hit and right. um, uh, Churchill I should say by the way believed in attacking the Germans everywhere every time all at once. <laughs> So uh, uh, he was on board for anything, really. Right. Uh, And and FDR kept an open mind. He was not a military strategist and uh, went in with an open mind and wanted to see where events took him. Yeah. And you and you make a good point because FDR was not a military man and he knew. He was not a military man. He was going to leave it to the professionals. But still, as you know, politics and war are very intensely mixed. And so FDR is going to want to hear from the uh, military guys. But he, he has to make the decision at the end of the day. When I read that passage of your book, I immediately started thinking about the science of boxing. Some people are like, let me get in, let me wear him down, let me jab him in the ribs, take his breath away, and eventually, somewhere down the road, maybe I can get a knockout punch. Whereas the Americans want to go in at round one and swing as hard as they possibly can, which is American, which is macho, which is whatever word you want to use. But the Americans have zero experience fighting like you said, the British have been at this for a year, year and a half on their own, and they know what the Germans are capable of. And so when I, when I, as I was going through your book, I'm like, I appreciate General Marshall's steadfastness. I appreciate his head-on approach, but that wasn't fitting the reality of the situation. You can't just put a whole bunch of Americans on, on in the UK, then build a whole bunch of ships and come over and, and think you're just going to fight your way to Berlin. I mean, the casualties, even if it had succeeded in 43, the casualties alone would have been staggering. Well, the British were convinced, and I, I certainly agree mm. that they were right, uh, that had they tried to cross the channel in 1943, or even in 42, which is what the Americans yes. were thinking about, uh, yes. that there would have been a catastrophe. They would have been been destroyed and uh, might very well have lost the war. So um, uh, that was the primal, the primal uh, issue between uh, them and the Brits. And then once the Japanese did come in, the other issue was how much, how many of our resources do we put in Europe and how many in the Pacific? And uh, the Brits wanted a minimal defensive war in the Pacific until uh, Hitler was beaten. And the Americans uh, wanted to go right at the Japanese as well as the Germans. 
Right. And that was that was one of the great ironies that you touch on in your book. All, all of the generals around Hitler are going, no, do, do not do a two front war. Do not do a two front war. That's how we lost last time. We can't take on the Germans until the British are defeated. And here's the Americans stuck or saddled with a two front war and they have to make some decisions. And as powerful and as industrial as the U.S. is, you know, it, it, this is going to take time. So as we see, the Americans are starting to convert to a war production. They're starting to train the troops. And this is stuff you have to do. You can't just put somebody in a uniform, give them a gun and point them at the enemy. They have to be trained on, on how to do this. Um, could you please give us, and of course, the Americans, FDR, is most desirous to get into this war after Pearl Harbor. Can you give us an idea or tell us the story of how Operation Gymnast came to be chosen for the Americans' first major involvement in the West? Sure. Uh, well, Operation Gymnast was uh, an invasion of North Africa. Later, changed to, the name was changed to Operation Torch. Mm -hmm. um, and in a nutshell, this is complicated stuff that's also explained, I hope, entertainingly in the book. But um, the French you know, having having been clobbered by the Germans in 1940, had agreed to an armistice that left the Germans occupying northern France and the right. entire Atlantic coast and left the French with a kind of a quasi-independent state uh, focused on the resort town of Vichy in, in central France, mm -hmm. uh, basically lapdogs of the Germans at this point. Right. But, but the thought was, uh, you know, and they had, of course, a, a very substantial North African empire. And mm -hmm. the thought was that if the Brits and the Americans together invaded North Africa, um, the odds were pretty good that the French wouldn't even oppose them because the, you know, they were not at heart um, on the German side, but on the right. Allied side. Right. Um, and that even if they did oppose them, it would be a token opposition and they could take all of North Africa and then be poised to open the Mediterranean to Allied shipping and also to attack Europe from the underbelly, as Churchill called it. Right. Um, FDR, on the one hand, uh, was well aware that once the, the United States was in the war, uh, the public just wouldn't wait. It just wouldn't allow you know us to sit on our hands and build right. for two years and then wait. You know, after two years, maybe start a war. <laughs> uh, they had to get it, get into uh, close contact with the Germans soon. Mm -hmm. uh, and Churchill uh, also was in favor of the North African approach, uh, as well as everywhere else, as I said before. Right. Uh, so by the time um, they got to the Casablanca conference in January of 43, uh, they had indeed invaded and taken almost all of North Africa after a couple of days of serious fighting with the French in which about 3,000 men were killed half mm -hmm. and half on both sides. Uh, right. We tend to forget that, that we actually fought the French in World War II for right. a few days. Um, and by that time then, uh, everything but Tunisia is in Allied hands, and um, uh, Rommel's been pushed uh, west by the British Army, and the idea is that uh, we're now going to bottle Rommel up, meet him in the middle, and mm -hmm. uh, and then cross the Mediterranean and do our damage there. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. 
There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So, so it's starting. We, we land in North Africa. The Americans are getting some experience because if I remember correctly, that was one of Churchill's selling points to FDR is like, you've got your guys and you're still gearing up. You need, you need some experience. So instead of doing that cross channel thing, which disastrous, why don't you come to North Africa? You can help us liberate. We can begin, you know, the underbelly um, philosophy that Churchill told Stalin about. And so the, uh, the Americans are, they get involved. Um, There's going to be ups and downs because they're still learning. But like you said, at least they're engaged. The American people can see that something is happening. So in this, I, you can almost say that Operation Torch was when World War II kicks up a notch because one, the Americans are involved and, and now it's like, what's the next big thing that we're going to do? So the offensive with the Americans involved, it's off to a good start, but there are consequences. Hitler has a reaction to, to Torch and then Vichy has a reaction to Hitler's reaction. Yeah, well, in a nutshell, um, the the attack on North Africa came as a complete surprise, uh, very well planned, uh, very well executed. An, wow. American, an American fleet sailed directly from Hampton Roads, Virginia, to Casablanca, Morocco, right. and appeared off the offshore <laughs> when, the, when the fog lifted and just wow. you know shocked everybody. And um, at this, you know, a, a few weeks before that, the the Brits had pushed uh, Rommel out of El Alamein in Egypt, mm-hmm. and started pushing him, you know. Uh, west. So the idea is to catch Rommel in the middle in Tunisia and then, uh, you know, cross over uh, the Mediterranean. Right. And, uh, that was all executed very well. Um, and now the issue is where do we go from here? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think what is going to make the Allies job a little harder is after Torch, you know, when Hitler takes the rest of France, uh, he's got that locked down. The Vichy keeping their word does manage to, to scuttle the rest of their fleet. Oh, so, so the yeah. Nazis can't get of it. So I, I enjoy that part of your book, but it shows you how careful the allies have to be because Hitler is ready to react in very extreme ways to any perceived, I guess, weakening of his hold on Europe. Yeah. yeah the, the Vichy, uh, the Vichy government uh, ordered the French military in North Africa to resist the landings, which they mm. did. But mm-hmm. after but after a few days of pummeling, it was clear who was going to win. It was always clear who was going to win. Uh, the Allies far uh, outstrengthed the French. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the French rolled over and basically joined the Allies, which caused Hitler to occupy all of Vichy France unopposed. So the German tanks and infantry rolled into Vichy France, uh, took over essentially the whole country. Right. And uh, in response to that, 
the French in, in, the, in, in the Mediterranean scuttled their Mediterranean fleet to keep it out of Hitler's hands. Right. Yeah, because the British did not want to think about how horrible it would have been if the if the Germans had been able to get their hands on what was left of the French fleet, because that was their one weakness. And that really would have made a difference. So fortunately, it worked that way for everybody, even though the French obviously were very disheartened to to scuttle their own fleet. So so you touched on this a second ago. So there's there's fighting going on in North Africa, but the allies are winning. Around the same time, the U.S. Navy has won the Battle of Guadalcanal. And like you said a moment ago, Rommel's being pushed back from Egypt. So things are going really well. And there's a big counterattack, I think, about to take place, or maybe it's already started in Stalingrad. So, so the tide is slowly beginning to turn. The question for the Allies is, where do we fight next? Because Churchill had dug himself into a hole when he pro- earlier he had promised General Marshall, the uh, chief of the uh, of the Army General Staff, um, we will cross the channel in forty three, which is what Marshall was obsessed about because he wants this war over with. But now Churchill wants to get out of that promise because, like you said earlier. We're just not we're not ready for it. The British aren't ready for it. Even together, we're not ready for it. Um, so that can't happen. But what about Stalin? He's going to be very upset when he hears there's not a, a, a cross channel invasion in 42 and maybe not even 43. How does FDR want to handle this? Yeah, well, first of all, Stalin did indeed have his hands full at Stalingrad at, right. uh, at the time of the Casablanca conference. Uh, that battle was raging and has gone well for the Russians, but was not yet won. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stalin, uh, when he was invited to confer with uh, FDR and Churchill on what what do we do next, right. uh, flatly unable to go because he was absorbed uh, at Stalingrad. Um, the second point on that is that uh, the Russians were being very hard pressed on the Russian front, taking by far the brunt of the German war machine, and there was serious doubt that they would hold on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they had not held on and the Germans had taken them out, um, there would have been no way to invade Europe at that point. That had been far too strong. And right. the war would essentially be either stalemated with just each side bombing the other or possibly even won by the Germans. So um, Stalin, uh, Stalin was a very key figure in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, was not at all pleased by the idea of the Allies not crossing the channel very soon uh, because, uh, you know, he, he needed relief from that pressure on his front and was um, was terribly uh, focused on on um, trying to get the Allies to cross the channel, basically in Marshall's corner. Right. Yeah, I can only imagine if the Russians had had been knocked out of the war all those divisions, all those planes, all those pilots, all this experience, the bombers, the fighters, the artillery, everything could have come back to the West. And, and, and you're absolutely right. They could have made Europe unassailable. They could have bombed the heck out of the UK. They were already doing that, but they could have done it so much more. So, yes, I think the Americans realize they need Stalin at this point, which is why he's invited to the conference. So there is going to be a conference Sadly, Stalin cannot make it because he's kind of busy. And, and I'd love th- this is where your book drills down into the personalities of the leaders. And I enjoy that so much. And, and you really get a sense that FDR, he's this kind of informal guy with a charming smiling on, uh, smile on his face. 
Yes, there's steel underneath that, but he has a certain style. That's not Churchill's style, but that's FDR's style. FDR wants to to get together with a meeting, and this is a military meeting. This is not a post-war political meeting. This is like literally, what do we do next? How do we fight? uh, FDR wants to come just with a few advisors, which is not Churchill's style at all. He's going to come with dozens of men, and they're going to try to meet to work this out. And then we see when these two, when their staffs get together first, we almost see a war within a war because the Americans have one idea, the the British have another. They both need each other, but they are far apart on their approaches of how to fight this war. Correct. Um, Two things, if I may, in response. Yeah, Uh, please. Is that um, you say the personalities are are the focal point of the book. Absolutely true. Um, I've always said that, you know, there's very little suspense when you write about big events in history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody knows that, you know, Caesar didn't do well in the forum on his last visit. And, you know, the Titanic never made it to New York. Yes. Good guys won World War II. So, what I think is more interesting by far is the personalities uh, of the, the key players, their interactions with each other, what they thought of each other, how they handled each other. Uh, and that's the focal point of the book. Right. Uh, second point. Um, yeah. Uh, the Brits were far better prepared uh, for this meeting than the Americans were, uh, not only because of their much deeper experience in fighting uh, the Germans, uh, mm-hmm. But also because of their system, they were very well organized, very thorough, and uh, they brought with them no less than 62 British officers, <laughs> um, not counting uh, Churchill's nine-man entourage, right. 80 staff and, and Marines, British Marines. Wow. Uh, the Americans brought nine American <laughs> officers, uh, in, including uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Right. And we're vastly outprepared and vastly outsophisticated uh, at every level. It's it's really hard for us today. Yes. Imagine how uh, how relatively unprepared and unsophisticated the Americans were compared to the Brits. Yeah, I, I couldn't help. But, you know, I'm an American. You're an American. Whatever. We, we there's a there's a certain point of view in that. But um, so the Americans show up and they know, they know they've got the bigger population. They've got the industrial might. They know the British need them. And yet, because this is a series of meetings, because this is a series of ideas, and the British are so much better at expressing themselves and explaining and justifying their goals, the Americans quickly get left behind. The only thing they've got going for them, besides FDR and his ever-present smile, is the fact that they do have all the industri- uh, industry and they know the British need them. And and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I loved how you weave into the story. The British have another idea. Yes, we need the Americans. I get all that. But we are going to outfox them and we are going to use their resources the way we see fit. And the Americans have to fight against this time and time again. And I, and I just love the way you, you, uh, you cover that in your book. So the two sides come together. 
the military staffs get there first. Uh, it's it's called the ANFA conference or the Casablanca conference. It gets underway. And just to let everybody know, it goes from January 14th to the 24th, 1943. Uh, can you describe for us a bit of the place? Because you you go on about how beautiful it is and how uh, it's just so scenic. It's just, it's just, just a magical place. And it almost feels like there's not a war going on because it is so lovely there. But can you give us an idea? idea of where they're meeting at. And, and, and you've already touched on the readiness of the British and the American staffs, but if there's any f- anything further you would like to add to that, please do so. Well, to start with the last point first, very briefly, yeah. um, Marshall was interviewed after the war about all of this. And right. he said that, you know, we went to Casablanca suspicious of the British, <laughs> not fully trusting their word because they had backed off on some other things in the past. Right. And uh, very wary uh, of, of British guile. Yes. Um, where, in fact, Marshall said after the war, uh, we were far more suspicious of them than they were <laughs> us, uh, because they didn't think we were smart enough to be treacherous. Yes. <laughs> well, I love that. So that's, oh the, uh, that's the lineup. <laughs> um, all that said, then, the, the venue that was chosen for the meeting uh, mm-hmm. was a very wealthy uh, suburb of Casablanca, or not really a suburb, but an outlying district, um, overlooking the sea with a resort hotel and uh, 15 or 16 lovely rich people's villas surrounding <laughs> it. Right. And uh, what Patton did, you know, Patton had led the invasion force that took Morocco mm-hmm. and uh, was in charge of the uh, of all the facilities and the rest at the conference. Uh, Patton was an unlikely cruise director, but uh, <laughs> that's what he was. Yes. Uh, and he had he had uh, commandeered the Anfa Hotel, which was a snappy resort hotel as right. headquarters, and for good measure had commandeered all these villas as well. And uh, they surrounded them with a mile of barbed wire wow. and uh, anti-aircraft guns, British Marines, elite American troops, uh, fighter planes circling overhead. Uh, the Germans had bombed that very neighborhood two weeks earlier. Wow. So, uh, it was a hazardous place to be, but it was right. also a luxurious place to be. Uh, beautiful weather, you know, uh, oranges everywhere. Right. Bougainville, all of that. And yeah. um, the Brits in particular were really awed by it because wartime London was not a pleasant place to be. <laughs> Good and, point. Um, to have yeah. all this uh, free food, free drinks, free cigarettes. Uh, it was sort of a luxury resort environment for right. very serious uh, existential threat <laughs> to be worked out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You make. You, I'm glad you said that because you reminded me. Because when when it, 
it, there's one part in your book, and it's a very small part, but it, but I enjoyed it. Is when they get there, everything's free. You know, like and like you were saying, there's 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 open bars, there's food, and and the British have come from suffering, from neglect, and from having to ration everything, and suddenly there's a plethora of everything you could ever want. But at the same time, they are talking about war. So the the ironic disposition, or whatever the proper term is, uh, I enjoy that very much. So. The military men get started. And, and like you said, what we find out is there's very little trust between them, cultural differences, that kind of thing. Do they respect each other? Absolutely. But like you said, some sides have broken their words um, uh, in the past. But could you compare the two, the two camps for us? Um, maybe some of the people that were in the room and what their goals were. Sure. Well, to start with the Americans, uh, George C. Marshall uh, is more famous today for the Marshall Plan, uh, yes. which he which he uh, oversaw in the Truman administration after the war to restore uh, the devastation in Europe and mm -hmm. won the Nobel Pre Peace Prize for that. Uh, but um, uh, he was a formidable figure, yes. uh, um, uh, a terrific uh, presence uh, that in itself, he, you know, he could dominate a room by walking into it. Right. And, uh, everybody respected him. He was uh, uh, a great gentleman as well as a very tough character and mm -hmm. um, uh, went went to Casablanca knowing that the British were far better prepared and more experienced uh, than the Americans. The other players on the American side, uh, you know, the, the chief of naval operations, Admiral King, right. was, uh, as tough as nails and as uh, <laughs> uh, you know obnoxious as a matter of policy, so yes. uh, he was a tough character to deal with. Um, Hap Arnold, the head of the American Air Corps, was a, a softer player, but right. um, you know they really they really came in with only vague and general ideas, as opposed to the Brits being you know laden with memos and staff <laughs> and experts. On the right. side, uh, <clears throat> General Allen Brooke was the chief of the Imperial General Staff, <clears throat> the uh, the youngest son of an Anglo-Irish baronet, right. uh, career military, uh, had really saved the British at Dunkirk under heavy fire the whole way, mm -hmm. um, and uh, very well respected on, on both sides, uh, but a very, very tough player, uh, irascible, obstinate guy <laughs> who uh, really had to contain himself to keep his cool at these meetings. Uh, right. The other big player that most Americans will know is Mountbatten. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord Lewis Mountbatten uh, was a British admiral um, and in charge of combined operations for the Brits, commandos, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very charming, but very gritty as well and, and yeah. tough, tough player. Uh, so, you know, experienced uh, military on both sides, but the Americans, to be born in mind, had not fired a shot in Europe. Not a shot at Good that point. point. Uh, not a not a single bomb dropped on Germany by an American plane at this point. So um, they they were really the junior partner in terms of experience and uh, hands on, but the senior partner in terms of potential, both numbers of troops and industrial capacity. So it was right. an interesting balance, and it made for quite an interesting conference. Right. And at the end of the day, they need each other. And I think, I mean, as, as, and cause this goes on for 10 days and it gets pretty ugly. There's highs and lows, but at the end of the day, they, they know they need each other and they have to work something out. And, and for the listeners, if you like Patton, he comes across 
at least this part in his life, he comes across very well. He's very charming. He's very entertaining. He's very blunt, as Patton is. I could not get enough of King. I, I have a love-hate uh, whatever with Admiral King, I I appreciate his ability, but his arrogance and his his single mindedness of the of the Pacific got. I'm sure they got on people's nerves, but in, but but like you said, they, this is a character driven story, and they come they they literally do come alive. They leap off the page in your in your book, and I appreciated that very much. And now the next question I have to ask you is a little, little, tiny question, little, little, tiny point in history, and yet it could have potentially changed the history of our world as we know it. Could you tell us about the Germans' Spanish station, what they were up to after this meeting gets underway? Sure. Well, keep in mind that Casablanca is up on the uh, northwest uh, coast of Morocco, almost mm-hmm. across the Strait of Gibraltar, you know, not far from it. And um, crawling with acts of spies, French, French, German, and Spanish. Uh, Keeping in mind that Spain was neutral, but a fascist country, you know, Mm -hmm. connected to Hitler uh, after the Spanish Civil War. So uh, the the essential point here is that a Spanish spy uh, realized or discovered, I should say, that Churchill and FDR and all of their top command were meeting in Casablanca. And the Germans, as I said, had bombed Casablanca just two weeks earlier. Right. And uh, would have been back in force had they known that. Uh, but uh, the, the dispatch to Berlin was in Spanish. And some poor German officer translated <laughs> Casablanca as White House. <laughs> so... Uh, the Germans believed that Churchill and FDR were meeting in Washington. Right. And, uh, didn't realize until after it was all over and a press conference was held that they had missed a golden opportunity. Oh, yeah. When I when I read that part, I'm like, I, I, I've got to get this man on because that, that's incredible. So literally Casa Blanca, White House. And they did end up calling the villa that FDR stayed in the White House. But if, yeah, I I imagine after this meeting and after the Germans found out what could have been, someone might have been shot. Who who knows what happened to to the poor uh, translator. But anyway, but I found that fascinating. Here was a once in a lifetime opportunity and they missed it completely, again, because of, of security and secrecy. That, but that that's what uh, people around leaders are supposed to do. So the conference is underway, and FDR and Churchill are about to show up, but it's still the military men speaking at this point. And I have to say, as much as I liked Brooke before your book, I absolutely love the man now. He he was brilliant. He he saw how everything was connected, and he literally had to try hard to keep his temper in check. He was literally talking to people that he could have just said, "I know that already. You're wasting my time. Let's move on." But but anyway, he, had, he he's got to be respectful of uh, other people as well. So instead of asking you to cover hour by hour, some of the more important topics that these guys had to literally bash their heads against each other for days, uh, however you would like to do it. Can you give us an idea of what maybe some of the subjects they had to cover, how the tension and the loyalties and the enthusiasm for these various enterprises changed over the days? And and just give us an idea of how this, this conference kind of starts 
and wherever you would like to end, because I purposefully am not going to ask you any questions about, say, like the last three or four chapters. I want to leave that for the readers. But you, it's your book, obviously. You can do what you want. But just give us an idea of, of how this conference unfolded. Sure. Well, first of all, FDR and Churchill met each it met every day during these 10 days and often dined together, had lunch together. Uh, right. they, they were in close contact throughout the 10 days. But they did that in their own private villas adjoining the hotel. The military uh, guys uh, were the ones who really ironed out the and, and argued out the military issues. Right. Um, so you've got them uh, arrayed against each other at this very uh, narrow conference table. Uh, mm-hmm. They're like three feet from each other. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, there was there was mutual respect. There was um you know, certainly they knew that they needed each other and how to find a way to come together or right. the, there could have been a catastrophic split or a deadlock. Yeah. And um, the way it basically unfolds is this. Um, the Americans begin with the thought that we need to cross the channel as soon as possible, even if we're unprepared and overmatched, mm-hmm. uh, because we got to pull Germans from Russia. And if we don't do that, we're going to lose this war. Right. And uh, at one point, uh, they talk about the prospect of a sacrificial gesture, meaning that even though they might only be able to send a few tens of thousands of troops across the channel, mm-hmm. uh, they would engage the Germans, they would draw German aircraft, they would bleed the Germans and pull them from France. And that was their number one thought about Europe. Right. Of course, in Japan... You know, they they Pearl Harbor was didn't need any reminders in their heads. And um, they were determined to hit Japan hard and constantly. So the Germans, uh, the Germans are number one uh, target of both sides. But there's that conflict between the Brits and the Americans. Mm -hmm. As time uh, goes on, on the open in the opening day or two, uh, there was such a adversarial uh, positioning on both sides that that they were both convinced that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to find a compromise. Uh, They just kind of hammered each other, uh, neither side giving ground, Mm. uh, and, uh, uh, you know, looking at a bleak prospect. Right. To to condense all this, which is, you know, 10 chapters in the book, (laughs) to to condense it all, Sure. A very bright and attentive British officer uh, by the name of Sir John Coatsworth Slusser, an right. RAF, uh, a senior RAF officer, uh, was sitting there as a staff member, not as a participant, and able to watch and listen and be somewhat detached and sort of see where the sides were coming from and what they really cared about and where the overlap was. Right. And he had been in Washington in those ABC talks back in 1940 and 41, and knew the Americans. He came there, he said, as an American translator. <laughs> and, uh, and it was Slesser who came up with uh, the compromise that eventually moved them toward the middle and resolved the thing. So that's a nutshell of, of sure. 10 chapters. Yeah. No, I like that because what it is is he's just sitting there day after day watching, not participating. And, 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 
And like you said, and I really haven't conveyed it very well, and I apologize, this was a very emotional meeting. There's tons of emotions. People are literally having to bite their tongue. And here's this one guy, John Slesser, just sitting there watching, observing. And what he's able to do is take their ideas, take the emotion out of it, write it all down. And when the Americans and the British can read it without the emotions, without the fighting, without that coming from a certain person's voice, they can go, yeah, no, th this looks good. So they are going to make progress. It is going to be uh, what's the the equivalent um, like like making sausage? You you don't want to see how it's done, you know, because it does get ugly very very quickly, and it is very emotional. And I think and and correct me if I if I'm wrong, but one of the other elements that was making them nervous was they wanted to make sure they did not upset Stalin because in this part of the war there is no three allies. There's no big three. Um, in, in a conventional sense. It's not like they've sat down and, and made agreements. They're just fighting the same person. So whatever they do, they know they have to do something good enough to keep um, Stalin in the war, not upset him. And for heaven's sakes, whatever he does, they, they can't do anything to make sure, they have to do whatever they can to make sure he does not make a separate peace with the Germans. Because like you said, the Germans and the Russians, they're just bashing their heads together, not really accomplishing all that much. And it might it, it might be good for both of them to make a peace with each other. And that's another thing the Western allies have to be concerned about. Yeah, all well, that's right. The you know the burden that was on these men that they sat at that table is really hard to imagine. Right. Uh, you know, today we talk about existential threats that sometimes are not existential, but yes. this was an existential threat, and right. uh, the fate of the world was. You know, it's interesting. At one point after the um, conference, Brooke, uh, the, the head of the British military delegation, who as I said was tough as nails, but often also had a sensitive, uh, you know, artistic side. Uh, was mm -hmm. a great uh, ornithologist and, you know, a, a different kind of guy when he was off duty. And right. um, when it's all over, uh, he's kind of taking a break in um, in a hotel garden and enjoying the birds. <laughs> uh, writes in his diary that it, were it not for the company of the birds, uh, <laughs> he, he, he thought he might have broken down, you know, just right. from the sheer relief from this tension. It's really quite quite a human interaction story as well as a military story. Right. And, and that was the other thing that I appreciated. Well, first of all, someone like General Brooke, um, tough as nails, true professional, he can see 10 steps ahead. And yet there's this completely different side of him when he and others go outside, they're taking a walk together as the British are wont to do. And they're looking at birds and they're noticing the birds and their and their and their ornithologists or whatever the proper term is. And, and that truly is a pleasure for them. But the other thing that struck me was, as we've said, General Marshall he could have been hewn from rock. This guy was tough. They were all tough. But but by the 10th day, they all look like they've aged 10 years. They all look haggard. They're all exhausted. Their brains are starting to turn to mush because they've just been hammering on these same ideas over and over again. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the British really did go in and go, their mentality was, look, you Americans, you don't know what you're doing because you just started. You've got the industry. We've got the experience. Let us run it. And so they were trying to frame it or form it in such a way where they would be making the shots. But the Americans, if you want, to their credit are going, no, no, 
we're in the war now. We're going to be the ones supplying everybody or, or doing a lot of the supplying. We feel that we should make the calls. And, and from that right there, you have a lot of tension between these two camps. Uh, correct. And, and the personality, again, is what I focus in on. Uh, right. You know, um, uh, Dean Atchison, who was uh, Truman's secretary of state, um, uh, and no shrinking violet himself, <laughs> uh, described Marshall's very presence as a striking and communicated force. Uh, right. There was just something about Marshall's bearing and determination and solidity, you know, that, that, yeah. held, that held the Americans together and deeply impressed the British as well. Um, and then you've got that, you know, that tension coming out of these very accomplished, very um, hard-nosed men who would, did not get to the top of their profession by being <laughs> gentle. Right. Uh, and um, on the one hand, there's that. And on the other hand, there's the need to come together. So uh, another thing I, I should mention, I think, is that yeah. this whole thing is, is a, to my mind, a model for how we in our own divided time, you know, might consider talking to each other. Uh, yes. Uh, there was no less tension, no less culture clash, uh, no less uh, ideological separation between the Americans and the Brits, as there is today between the Reds and the Blues. And uh, if they can do it, we can do it. <laughs> exactly. Because it was literally, like you said, life and death struggle. And if they can work together on that, we should be able to do better. So so I'm almost finished with my questions. Thank you very much for your time today. But there, I just want to let the readers know, there's a whole bunch we haven't mentioned. And let me just list a couple. Oh, and let me, let me ask you this before I do that real quick. Um, the whole question of the French. Oh, my goodness. The, the two leading French uh, people, uh, de Gaulle and is it Gerard? I'm not sure how to say his name. Could you just maybe just give us an idea of what the uh, the Americans or the British were trying to do with these two guys and how difficult they made it? Because by the time I finished reading your book, I wanted to choke de Gaulle, <laughs> even though he's already dead. But oh, my God, this guy was insufferable to say the least. Yeah, well, to set the stage briefly, um, yeah. De Gaulle and Giro, I believe it's pronounced. Ah, thank you. Uh, uh, were the, the two most prominent French generals of the day. Mm -hmm. um, de Gaulle had, um, you know, become a national hero um, before the Germans conquered the French right. and um, became a bigger national hero <clears throat> when he got into a small plane and flew to England after Vichy made the deal they made and got on the BBC and uh, became the rallying point for the French resistance and um, the anti-Vichy voice of France. Right. Uh, a towering, stupendous ego. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, Giro was, um, had been a prisoner of war of the Germans and right. had, had pulled off a cinematic escape. And he too was a hero in France and was kind of the mainstream uh, Vichy-oriented uh, French figure. The mm -hmm. two of them despised each other and uh, could not really come to terms on joining and sharing power rather than staying separate. Uh, at Casablanca, mm -hmm. uh, they both came. Uh, Giro very gladly, and de Gaulle had to be bludgeoned into coming. <laughs> uh, at one point... Uh, Churchill, uh, an American mentioned de Gaulle to Churchill, and Churchill said, oh, let's not speak of him. 
Uh, we call him Joan of Arc, and we're looking for some bishops to burn him. So, uh, sorry. A subtext of the book is the struggle to get them together, which uh, which is its own story. Right. Oh, I love that story very much. And by the time I finished reading your book, I, like they, started referring to myself in the third person. Drove my family crazy for a couple of days. So that's kind of your fault. But anyway, I, I, I love the uh, De Gaulle was just so... In, anyway, but that was very entertaining in your book. But I just want to mention um, to the people real quick. Um, yeah, it, it took De Gaulle... The, the conference was almost over with by the time they got him there. They, they argued back and forth about the best time and way to invade Sicily. And the landing craft question... Oh my God, that was such a that was such a major part of it. Um, you just wish they could have built a couple million more and taken care of that, but that was a real prob- a bottleneck, if you will, that they had. Um, uh, was it uh, Mountbatten who came up with the idea of carriers made of ice or water? So there's you know there's things like that in there, and of course we get to hear about Mohammed V, the the Sultan of the area. He gets invited to the conference, and that's that's a very uh, great part of the book too. It's very touching, especially his son and, and Patton form a bond. I, I enjoy that very much. So, like I said earlier, we're we're not going to touch the very end of this because I want to leave something fresh for the listeners. Um, but just know, just I want the leaders to know that even though they come up with an agreement, like you said earlier, Ch- Churchill wants to fight everybody everywhere all the time, which is just not militarily feasible, but he wants something bigger. He wants bigger scale to the battles. He wants bigger scope to the plans. He wants more clashes with the enemy. But I, but I want to give you the last word, and, and, you, and you have to admire that about Churchill. He, he is a warrior. He is a fighter. But given all that you had to do, all that you had to learn, all the research that you had to undertake in order to, to uh, write this book, what's something that we should walk away with, either about humans being able to work things out or about these gentlemen during these 10 pivotal days? What would you like to leave us with? I would say two two things. <clears throat> One is, you know, uh, people, certainly your audience, who I think are far more uh, sophisticated on these things than, than most people, uh, mm-hmm. people know the drift, at least, of what happened in World War II in its various stages and who the big players were and essentially how it went. What, right. what I think people don't necessarily know is the personalities and uh, personal lives and uh, interactions, human interactions of these figures as human beings. And uh, that's what I tried to dwell on. And it's a character-driven book that I think will inform even better uh, educated, better informed people uh, uh, than most. Uh, mm-hmm. The second point is what I maybe jumped the gun on a few minutes earlier. I think there is an object lesson for us here today um, about how people with very different cultures, very different ideologies, um, and different goals, uh, but a common uh, need to work together and solve problems, how that can be done. And uh, I hope and uh, and pray, actually, that, uh, that this can contribute something to that as well. 
Absolutely. If if they can work this out, we should be able to work out our problems today because, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are ways to make progress and not take everything personally. And this book does an excellent job of that. I enjoyed it very much. Mr. Conroy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for this book. Um, and for everyone else, it, I, it's coming out today. As a matter of fact, you can go to wherever you order books or get books and you'll probably see it there. The book is entitled The Devils Will Get No no rest, FDR, Churchill, and the plan that won the war. Mr. Conroy, thank you very much again for your time, sir. Thank you, sir. I really enjoyed it. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance and you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.